The final segment of The Key to Time is at the heart of a devastating war between neighboring planets Atreos and Zeos. The Fourth Doctor discovers that a sinister entity is manipulating events, and the cost of obtaining the final segment may be more personal than he imagined. You're listening to Oi Spaceman, Doctor Who Love Story, a social justice-focused podcast dedicated to intersectionality, where a polyamorous husband and wife believe that loving something doesn't preclude being critical of it. This podcast often includes naughty language and general disregard of most things even Moffat and other adult content. I really don't have much to say about that description. Pretty accurate, I guess. Sure. So, uh, welcome, Boys Spaceman and Doctor Love Story. This was episode 59. Oh man, we're almost 60. Almost. Today we're doing the Armageddon Factor, finishing up the key to time. Thank God. <laughs> you don't like I'm the key ex- to time? I'm exaggerating a little. I, I we'll, think you're exaggerating considerably. But. Yeah. We'll talk more about it later, but I mean, there there's a lot of fluff overall, <laughs> but yeah, there, I, I still liked a lot of it. So I have a fairly unorthodox uh, reading on the Armageddon Factor. Okay. I think it might just be about the Cold War. No. <laughs> Written by Bob Baker and Dave Martin. Uh, they also did The Three Doctors. They did uh, The Invisible Enemy. Uh, they've been around since early on in the Pertwee years. They're pretty much workmanlike writers. They work together on many stories. Also called The Bristol Boys. I think we talked about that when we did The Three Doctors. Directed by Michael Hayes. He also did Android Zotera. And I did this one right after Android Zotera. And I've got to say, this is a really well-directed episode. I, I, I liked the look of this. I mean, given the, the budgetary constraints and the uh, kind of technical constraints. Yeah, no, it's a fine episode in a lot of ways. I like it. I just think the more we got through the Key to Time series, the more I realized, because, I mean, are, were they all six-parters or did they all just feel like six-parters? <laughs> this is the only six-parter. All the rest are four-parters. Okay. Well, there you go. Uh, six parts was definitely a little long for me. Um, but f- the four parts were, for the most part, a little too long for me. Well, you'll probably be happy to learn then. This is actually the very last six-part story that was ever aired. Everything past this point is four parts or less. <laughs> I'd say, okay, well, that's setting the bar a bit low. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, Shana, no more six-parters. Everything will have four parts or less. Four parts becomes a pretty standard running time, pretty much at the beginning of Tom Baker's run, and then they tend to do six-parters as, like, series finales or season finales. So this is a pretty standard structure. You do a bunch of four-parters, and then you do a six-parter at the very end. Um, It's supposed to feel epic. Did it feel epic for you, Shane? I don't... You know, I... I don't think it did. Uh, I... (laughs) I mean... I'm an English major. I hear the word epic, and it's like, okay, well, what do I compare it to? The Odyssey. Uh, (laughs) The the Odyssey is like the platonic ideal of epic. Almost literally the platonic ideal. Exactly. So I, you know, I think of all the things that we complained about throughout the series, how um, the overarching storyline just kind of loosely held together the stories. It didn't really feel like it was part of the stories. And mm-hmm. I'd have to say, no, it doesn't really feel epic. It feels a little bit messy. Sure. Well, what do you think about the Armageddon Factor in, like, specifically as opposed to, Specifically, like... the... I could tell that the Armageddon Factor really wanted to be epic in terms of scale. You know, we're talking about, like... A whole missing planet. And then there's a whole second missing planet <laughs> that you can't see because hand. Um, yeah, the astro, astro, uh, astro navigation does not work that way, by no. the way. Astronomy does not work that oh, way. Oh, God. But anyway, I think what ultimately bothered me is the real part that felt epic, they didn't get to until the very end, which was... The idea that the way we measure who is the good guy and the bad guy is who is willing to sacrifice the life of Astra. Sure. Now that, that is an epic journey. That is a big idea 
if they had focused on that more throughout the whole goddamn thing, better. So here's where here's where I give you a little bit of trivia here. So Anthony Reed has been the script editor for uh-huh. the last couple of years. Uh, he left kind of early, and the incoming script editor actually kind of script edited the last 15 minutes of the last episode of uh, basically the part you're talking about. Uh, the incoming script editor is our good friend Douglas Adams. Oh, okay. Um, and you can really, like, once I read that, I'm like, oh, right. Well, because suddenly there's a reason for everything, and it holds more emotional weight. Right, which, I mean, ironically, when we talked about the pirate planet, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's kind of, that feels very effervescent, you know, kind of, mm-hmm. you know, just soap bubbly kind of thing. Um, whereas, we'll talk a little bit about the Douglas Adams season, season 17. Um, we're actually only going to do one episode of his, one episode that he script edited um, during this uh, kind of run-through. Uh, but you, you'll get to see some, basically the best of the Douglas Adams script editing. So yeah, I mean, so I was going to have us rank the episodes of the Key to Time season in terms of like quality, but to me, it's kind of like the Rebos operation is way, way up there, and then everything else is solid but not exceptional. There's really not, like, it's hard for me to say, well... The Armageddon factor is better or worse than... Well, uh, I kind of feel like the entire thing could have been six episodes. The whole key to time? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting at looking at this as a whole season, Mm -hmm. and I think that kind of where we both land on it, is that today we really expect much more kind of thematic resonance to go on between these stories. We expect there to be some kind of like progress made. It's not even that. It's the fact that it is there. They try Mm -hmm. to put it there by having it be the key to time. Mm -hmm. But they don't really talk about the key to time much except for um, when they find a piece. (laughs) Well, in the Enders of Terra, it's literally just a rock that they find. Like, that's, you know, it has no... Um, And then suddenly in this last story, we see its power, but we also see that, like, a random piece of metal can be shoved in and last for... Like, an, a not insubstantial about amount of time. Right. It was like three minutes, but still. It's, I mean, it was like a couple of hours of in time, in universe time. Right. You know, so. so it was just, there were lots of little things about it that I felt it undercut itself. Sure. In its own storytelling. Um, I mean, it ultimately feels silly. It, it feels a yes. little, um, you know, I kind of wish that Bob Baker and Dave Martin had taken on Power of Kroll. And Robert Holmes to get into Armageddon Factor, because I think, I mean, Holmes knew how to do kind of epic ideas on the small budget. I think one of the things that I run into with the production on the Armageddon Factor is that it's supposed to be this kind of, like, world-spanning, like, epic clash of civilizations, and you really only meet, like, four people. I mean, you know, so so, um, I kind of get the idea that, you know, it's isolated military base and, the, you know, this this militaristic society and everything. But um, for me, I mean, while I get kind of what they're trying to do and it's supposed to be this kind of abstract theater almost kind mm-hmm. of way of viewing this, uh, to some degree, I think the production design kind of lets it down just in the sense of, well, not even the production design because I think the production design is, is pretty good. I think you do get this kind of dark corridors. I kind of like these corridors. But um, the fact that you're not really getting a sense of kind of a larger society kind of fails the story in a way. Well, and it's the who and the Zeon? Zeons? The, it's A and Z. It's the Atreons and the Zeons. Atrion. Or Atrios. <clears throat> or Whatever. I can't remember how they pronounce it. but So we get a, a kind of peep at the Atrios, Atrian, whatever, society. The fact that we never see any of Zeos, like, you know from the beginning, oh, Zeos is gone. There's something else going on. Like, uh-huh. I mean, as at least I did. I felt like the storyline was fairly predictable in that way. Sure. Um, so it did kind of go against it feeling epic. But I also feel that when we do finally get this bad guy who is a dude with a skull mask. The and, shadow. Yeah. And... This probably has more to do with the DVDs and the fact that we have kind of cleaned them up and it wouldn't Mm. have looked as clean on TV. But towards the end, you can see where the makeup is kind of cracking and you can see. But ultimately, that is to say, I just wasn't so convinced 
I, I was distracted by things. I was taken out of it. And not just by how it looked, but the story just... One of the things you run into in, in this kind of era is just, like, there has to be this kind of willing suspension of disbelief. And when the production team isn't really quite on board with, uh, you know, the story or when things are kind of out of sync, it is kind of easy to, to get distracted. And when you have little hinky things in the story, like canine being bad for a while and you know characters changing personality completely because of a button on their neck it's not even that i'm saying it's bad but there is a little bit of look away for a second and you've missed a whole plot point because a button got put on somebody's neck right and there should i would think it should feel a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, I'll have to say, I have to say, watching this now, I've seen it twice. I liked it a lot more the second time than the first time, even though I didn't like remember a lot of the details of what happened. Um, I do think that a lot of the Doctor Who stories in this era do work better upon a second viewing. Um, let's go through some characters. I think that'll be uh, a fun uh, activity we haven't done in a while. Sure. Astra. You know, that actress, she might be going somewhere on this show. I, I don't know if I actually mentioned this in the show or if I was just told you this, but I'm getting a little annoyed because I know Romana 1's time is ending. Yep. I know Romana 2 is on her way. I know this actress will be Romana 2. Yeah, and she'll eventually marry Richard Dawkins. Who's kind of an asshole. He's an anti-feminist douchebag. Yeah. Kind of racist towards Islamic people. Yeah. You know. Etc. But so, like, I, I mean, I see her, and I'm like, oh, right, I remember she played another character before. And and what bothered me most really was, I think she's an interesting character, but I think that we don't get to see much of Astra the character. We get to see Astra the damsel who yep. is dying from radiation sickness or mind controlled. Sure. And then at the very end. She decides to sacrifice her life for her people. Well, it's... And then doesn't have to... You, she's she's definitely... I mean, it's one of those things to where if you didn't know that she was going to come on next year as, as the new Romana, you would kind of say, wow, that's kind of a nothing character. That's kind of a nothing... Like, like, you don't get a great sense of, like, dynamic character writing. She, the character's definitely underwritten. This is kind of one of those times where, I mean, you've got six episodes to write this. I wish we could have spent more time on the kind of character dynamics and less time on the on the kind of running through corridors. Well, and you have Astra, who at the last minute, it's like, she is the sixth daughter of the sixth blah, 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 and therefore she is the sixth piece of the key to time. Which, by the way, what if they had found her first? She would no longer be the sixth piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there does seem to be like this order, like you have to find them in a particular order, sort of thing. Which is whatever. You know. That that's that's a little point. Um, <laughs> but you have this whole kind of mythology, and well, you get this kind of like destiny thing, where like she, destiny, she's... and it has been foretold. What's the word I'm thinking of? Prophecy. Well, yes, you have this whole prophecy that is alluded to many times, but we don't really spend a lot of time with it. And Five that, minutes with the with actually developing a prophecy, mm-hmm. you could have had a whole dynamic to the culture added. You could have had characterization for Astra and the rest of the people of Atrios. God, Astra of Atrios. That is really difficult. Astra of Atrios, yeah. So there's like lots of stuff like that that just felt annoying, sure. frankly, about that character. But... I like costume. I thought she was kind of cool overall when she did actually have the opportunity to step up and say something. Sure. She did a few times, which is kind of cool seeing, even though she is kind of, um, she's, she's the queen, but not. Sure. She's in a position of authority, I, but. I kind of get this moved. thing of like watching her performance. I mean, I don't think that she's bad in this role. Right. But I kind of don't see from this performance, oh, why did they invite her back to come on and be the new companion? Exactly. Whereas, Whereas in, like, previous stories, when you've had kind of actors show up and then later on become companions, usually you kind of get it. It kind of comes across on screen. Or even with Martha. Well, yeah, I, I mean, mean, that's Freema. a... Freema. Freema Agumon. I mean, there have been other examples of... Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, even Colin Baker shows up as a as another character before he shows up as the sixth doctor, actually. Aww. There's an episode where he shoots the fifth doctor. Aww. <laughs> like, he's this, he's this bad guy. Spoiler alert. Spoilers. Um, the Black Guardian. 
the black guardian is the white guardian is the black guardian. I really couldn't tell the difference between the two. It is a different actor. Okay, there's that at least. Um, this actor was another person who was originally considered to be the second doctor. Just FYI. So random. Yeah, I mean, we've got two actors in the Key to Time season who were originally considered for the second doctor role. So I guess you know. they, they really were trying to make it epic. Uh, <laughs> I, I I will say, um, just in general, I looked through some of the credits of the actors mm-hmm. who were in this, you know, just kind of went to IMDb. Um, a lot of these guys ended up being working actors for years and years. I mean, yeah. of the ones that are still alive, most of them are still acting and kind of character parts in Britain. So I thought well, that's that was... Good. There are a lot of, like, kind of well-known character actors in this, um, oh, if you're okay. if you're British. What, what were we talking about before the you said The Black Guardian. Oh. What do you think of The Black Guardian? Well, or shall so, we save that for the end? No, I mean... I think part of it, and the reason I do, I would like to talk about it now, is that I have issues because I had been trying to work through this framing narrative of the White Guardian, and we never see him again. Yeah. He, he doesn't come back. And so it's like, all right, so I have this weird colonial British White Guardian, and then the Black Guardian shows up and kind of looks like a white-clothed franciscan monk and you know when we look at tv as critics or movies or anything that is a visual medium like you kind of have to take it literally at face value and say what does the image of this character say to me sure. what, are, what are the semiotics of it what are what, right what, what are visually i mean somebody made the decision to put this character in this and so to have one side be like the, the imperialist good mm-hmm. and the other side to be almost looking religious, but oh. perhaps maybe in a more cult or occultish way. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually put this in my notes here um, because there is, I mean, obviously the key to time mm-hmm. season, at least on its surface, is kind of about good and evil. Mm-hmm. You know, this conflict or, you know, balance of the Dow or whatever you want to say. Right. I mean, there are lots of different interpretations. Um, what I found interesting watching through the whole thing again, you know, our, our quote-unquote good, our, our white guardian, is uh, kind of distant and uncaring. Mm-hmm. You know, he's kind of off. He's kind of like, oh, go and do my bidding. Do yeah, my you thing, don't really you know. see him much at all. He get, uh, you know, he shows up at the very beginning of the rebus mm-hmm. operation. You get a little bit of his voice towards the middle, but you really don't ever mm-hmm. see him again. Um, whereas evil is like this constant force. Like, mm-hmm. like you get the shadow has been like actively corrupted by the Black Guardian. Right. The shadow is doing his, you know, bad guy thing and is implied that he's been there for literally thousands of years, if not millions yeah, of years. Yeah, and he could wait a thousand more. He could wait a thousand years and it's like an eye blink, even for a character like the Doctor. Yeah. You know? Well, and he, again, the shadow is like basically a death figure. Sure. So the, the one that the the white guardian chooses to do his bidding is the doctor, but the so the black guardian he hires death. So if you kind of look at it that it's like good, evil, imperialism, or whatever religious figure ish. The doctor, death. Well, this also plays into you know you kind of mentioned death. I mean, it kind of plays into Christian mythology, right? You know, where again, God kind of stands aside and doesn't really interfere, but the devil's always you know, tweaking around and offering people deals and doing all kinds of stuff. It's almost like this medieval um, moral play, you know, a morality play uh, in in terms of, you know, just kind of overall structure, which mm-hmm. I, I think is I think is, is interesting. I mean, uh, we see a lot of kind of uh, Buddhist, kind of Eastern, kind of vaguely Eastern-ish ideas in Doctor Who. It's just kind of very much a part of the, you know, if you were kind of a, a writer in England in 1979, you know, uh, Buddhism was just on your mind, I think. I think if you were a writer anywhere. But, um, you know, the, this, it feels a lot more Christian. And I think particularly because of the way that the, um, the threat of nuclear annihilation, this actual, like, Armageddon, I mean, this is called the Armageddon Factor, mm-hmm. based on one line that Tom Baker says in, I think, episode three or four. But, uh... Yeah, but that line also kind of feels a little thrown in. Oh, yeah, it definitely does. This is the Armageddon Factor, is kind of what it... I mean, yeah, it, like, it, it, I'm seeing the title now! <laughs> there are hardly any um, Doctor Who stories where they actually say the title in the, in the story, and this is one of them. So, yay. So, yeah, moving on to another character, and uh, one who I think is... Uh, 
a little bit more fun. I don't know. What do you think of Drax? Wait, which one is Drax? He's the uh, he's the other time. Lord. He's the other renegade time lord. Yeah, he I... is played by Barry Jackson. He is also in two other black and white Doctor Who stories. Honestly, you you know what I thought of Drax? One, what the fuck? Two, can he be the new companion? I I was I was kind of thinking the same thing. If you remember in uh, the more current episode in Mummy of the Orient Express, you know you had the the kind of engineer guy. The, mm-hmm. And you were kind of like, hey, can he come on and be a companion? I sort of would kind of buy the idea that Drask shows up and he's just kind of this very working class, kind of bumbling, but basically competent guy. Kind and of not around. necessarily morally good. No, no, kind of a, well, and when we get to, you know, morally ambiguous companions, we're right. going to get that in the John Nathan Turner era, which is coming up very soon, actually. Oh my gosh! There is some, I have uh, kind of read some people talk about, um, I have not found um, the exact source for this. Mm-hmm. There are people who speculate that Drax is gay. Because... Uh, apparently in some of the like ancillary novels or something, it's kind of implied that he might be gay or bisexual or something. Oh, but not because of anything in this episode. It's sort of, I think it might just be like he's kind of a... He's awfully chummy with the doctor, but I didn't really feel anything sexual about it. It's just something I kind of heard people talk about occasionally. I tried to mm-hmm. Google it, but I couldn't like in two minutes find a really good source for it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just going to let it go. But if any listeners happen to, to know that, I'd, I'd be interested in kind of getting that backstory. Yeah, he's, he was also kind of a character that I was like, man, we could get rid of the Master for a while and have Drax come back, and he would kind of be like uh, the, more, what was he called, the trickster? No. The, the monk? The monk, the yeah, meddling, the meddling yeah. monk. In Classic Who, I think what I really miss, and and also wish that they had utilized more, is the fact that they had all these other Time Lords. Mm-hmm. They, you know, the Time Lord race was not dead. Right. Um, and so you, you got, I mean, they... Sp- they they spread it out over a lot of years. I mean, you know, we haven't right. seen a Time Lord in a while. I mean, there are really only a handful of Renegade Time Lords. And this is one. He's only in this one story. It kind of goes nowhere. It's so disappointing. He should come back. And he has his own TARDIS. And, like, he's like, yeah, my TARDIS is right over there or something like that. And yeah. There was a lot that I was like, wow, this character has so much potential. And then he just gets really underutilized. And then he never shows back up. Yeah. Yeah, no. He's almost a, you know, I, I hate it, like a working class version of the Doctor. He's, you know, mm-hmm. he was he was in the same academy. He was he becomes a Time Lord, um, so he he passes classes, but apparently didn't do so well in the theory. And then he ends up basically like as a as a technician, you know, it's like a kind of you know fixing the the air vents essentially in Time Lord society. And he goes off on his own. Uh, I mean, it's 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 a much more interesting character than we're really. I mean, it's amazing that we just kind of run into him almost by happenstance. And, he and we can... have three Time Lords together. Right. Yeah, well, and they right. don't really do anything with it. And they don't it. really do anything with it. Uh, you know, again, kind of a, an idea that I think Holmes would have done something really interesting with. Mm-hmm. Having, a, having a more kind of um, mercurial, impish uh, Time Lord, you know, who's, who's even more morally ambiguous than the Doctor in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but who isn't straight up evil, I think. I think Holmes would run with that if he had, you know, if he had had this story to write. It's kind of amazing they put it in. I'm, I, I don't know what the genesis of that character is. I'm really glad he's here, but I mean, they just kind of more use him as comic relief to some degree. I think that's what he's meant to be. I think they think that the rest of this episode is very serious, right? So, so he, they needed a comedic character. That's fair. Um, he also becomes the magic key that canine cannot be, while canine. Right, he ends up, he ends up, uh, kind of, yeah, you're right, he kind of ends up being the, the guy that does the techie stuff when, when mm-hmm. K9's kind of doing his thing. Yeah, he's, it's so much like a plot device, it's just mm-hmm. sort of, you know, he's just kind of there, but I wish he had been around to do a little bit more. Here's an interesting guy, the Marshal. What to say about the Marshal? He plays into that Cold War, you know, right. that, that kind of militaristic. I kind of get the sense he's a, he's, he's full of false bravado. He's this guy who's kind of uh, standing there. He's got all his medals, he, but he's been hiding behind the the desk for you know his entire career. He's also essentially. um the the mind controlled. Yeah, he well he's so there's like some. Do you some think he's of... mind controlled, or do you think he's just using the power? I don't know. It's really hard to tell. He kind of acts like the others do when they're mind controlled. Doesn't he have a button on his neck? I can't remember if he does or doesn't. Honestly. Which... 
which is something to say about that. But there's definitely... I don't think he does. I think I think he's kind of, if he's mind-controlled, it's because the, the Shadow has been kind of offering him this ability to destroy his enemies, and he's, he's more ideologically motivated as opposed to actually being mind-controlled. But mm. um, I don't know. I think there's, there's, you know, they're going for some kind of metaphor here. They're going for this, like, really interesting metaphor about, um, you know, this kind of mutually assured destruction, you know, this kind of late 70s Cold War kind of thing. The Armageddon factor, if you will. I mean, there's, again, this kind of really interesting bit, like the very beginning of the story is this soap opera, essentially, that people in this, you know, bombed-out ward are watching. Yeah. And then you never really get a sense of that again. Which is so unfortunate, because I loved that part. Right. I thought it was really interesting. It actually made me think of, um... It actually made me think of Spare Parts, and how it uses radio and oh, right. advertisement well, to tell stories. That's, but that's not even a comparison. Spare no, no, Parts no, no, is no. so much no. better. Because, you know, that's how the episode opened. I was like, mm-hmm, this could be like Spare Parts. Maybe they will have society. No. Even, no. um... I mean, even... They, they do they do play with kind of metatextual elements in mm-hmm. some other stories in the 80s. And... I mean, it's not even that they're better. I think it's effectively used in the first, like, 30 seconds of this episode. I think it sets the scene very well. I just think that the story just never does anything else with it again. And this is, again, kind of part of that, like, kind of failure of imagination and world building. Mm-hmm. Um, again, why I think Like, that, if you're going to show people in a hospital ward, why are they watching a soap opera? Or, or once you've kind of played this media up, mm-hmm. then then you should do more with it. You mm-hmm. should, like... You could do so much to tell the story of the society mm-hmm. without a lot of actors if right. you were kind of using that as a mechanism, right? right? And I think that we're supposed to kind of get a sense of this, you know, society that is in some sense uh, being fed this opiate of uh, of television to, to keep them going. But, again, that's, that's such a... I mean, that's literally like you're 15 really, seconds. Yeah, you're reaching you know, for th- it. They're not, they're not doing anything with it, so mm-hmm. it's it's kind of dumb for me even to talk about it um uh the mentalis the uh computer and uh you know the structure is kind of two two and two you kind of get two parts that are all about the marshal and the society on atrios mm-hmm. and you get two parts that are kind of all about the computer and combating the computer and you get two parts that are like all about the shadow effectively um and they kind of bleed into each other a little bit here and there but you do get this kind of two parts in the middle that you could almost completely jettison you know, if you were, if yeah. you were, you know, it definitely feels a little bit like padding. What do you think of the idea that the the Atrios, that the people in Atrios are battling this this empire, this other planet that they never see, they never take, you know, casualties from, they never take prisoners from, and it turns out to be this this computer that's just running on autopilot essentially. Well, and I mean, I said I kind of predicted it from early on because. It's one of the first things the doctor asks is, have you seen any of these uh, people from this other planet? And the guy's like, how would I know? They look just like us, except they wear different clothes. And the doctor's kind of like, hmm, that seems suspicious. And he's (laughs) like, well, where are the prisoners? And it's like, they take whatever capsules, same as we do. They just go poof, uh, like dematerialization capsules. Right. And the doctor says, hmm, maybe they don't exist at all. And, like, you can see it right there. And I think that that's in the first episode. I might be remembering that wrong. No, I, I mean, that that's early on. I mean, it's, it's definitely there. So from that point on, it's just, it was really very obvious to me. There was no trace of this other culture mm-hmm. the entire time they're talking about it. And they're living very much in just this cycle of things are coming at us. We need to go, like, destroy the map. I don't know. It just seemed like such an obvious metaphor. <laughs> sure, sure. For, like, an, any government that is lying to you about war. Well, it's definitely playing on the, you know, Eurasia has always been at war with East Asia, yeah. you know, kind of idea. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's a fairly obvious sort of thing. Um, I actually didn't, like, remember that... There were no Xeons. I kind of, you know, I just forgot that element of it. So mm. when it did show up, oh, it's the computer. Right, the fucking computer. I forgot all about that. I mean, the thing is, when I watched all of these, they all kind of bleed into each other when you watch them mm-hmm. all in a row. Um, which is part of why I enjoy podcasting them with you, because, you know, then I actually kind of sit down and watch them and, like, consider them a little bit more. 
But no, that that part actually kind of took me by surprise a little bit. So I mean, I'm I'm happy that you you know I'm I had a better experience watching it because I it was all new to me. I had just forgotten that you know there were no Zeons. Um, uh, the the computer being you know the opposite. Side, it's funny how much of this. Uh, we were going to do Destiny of the Daleks next, which is the very next story, and that shares a lot of elements a lot of kind of plot and thematic elements with this one so much so that i'm now glad we're not doing them mm-hmm. back to back because we basically just kind of make the same points about you know yeah. nuclear war and detente and you know two mm-hmm. evenly matched sides and that sort of thing but we're in it, skipping that one for reasons that we'll get into uh, in a couple of weeks yeah other elements of this the the kind of dehumanization of astra you talked a little bit about you know astra kind of having to make the choice and feeling like the the prophesized one and all that sort of thing and the fact that she's literally the fact that she's literally turned into an object that's kind of traded back and forth between sides and then eventually becomes a literal piece of the key to time i'm wondering if you had anything to say about that you want to tell me my answer when you ask the question anymore, Dan? Uh, no. <laughs> I'm just going about I, my cisette white man, you know, like dominating all the conversations. Do you think things. she was super objectified? I don't know. Maybe she was super objectified. Uh, I think it's it's difficult because at the beginning, you see her as a character being objectified and used as a pawn in war. But we didn't really get to see much characterization. You could think, okay, well... She's stiff upper lip British kind of holding it back because maybe her control is purely in title and not in actuality. She doesn't mm-hmm. really have the power. But instead of having any of that kind of political story to add characterization, she has a love story with Merrick, which is fine, whatever. Good for you remembering his name. I wouldn't have it except I wrote it down. <laughs> oh, Merrick? She's Merrick's like the one name I remember. Merrick? Where is Merrick? Oh, I miss Merrick. Anyway, um... <laughs> Bland, generic, white man from the late 70s, number 53. <laughs> yeah, who gets bumped on the head. So I think at the end, when you have this question about her using being seen as an object, and then actually kind of being an object, which is this metaphorical object that controls time, that has been foretold. Like, there's all of this stuff that gets jammed into that last episode Mm -hmm. that anything I thought about the previous episodes, I'm just, I I get a little confused. I don't really know how to approach it because should I see Astra as having been objectified by, you know, how we say there's a difference between being objectified by the world that they're in and a difference between a writer objectifying a character they are writing. Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard to tell what the story is trying to say because it just right. it doesn't hold together for me. And in universe, Astra makes mm-hmm. the decision to you know to to essentially fulfill her destiny, quote unquote, which right. has its own issues. Again, this could have been a much bigger part of the story. I, I think you know ultimately part of why this kind of falls flat to some degree is just that it it feels like we could have spent more time on it. We could have explored this idea a lot more, and then you know we didn't. Um, because, again, like like the last six part that we talked about, the invasion of time, it feels kind of lopsided. It feels like you're kind of getting, you know, stuff at the wrong pace, maybe. Yeah, maybe it is a pacing thing. It's, I, I, I really, it, <laughs> it was hard for me to tell. One, just because there is a lot of fluff in this story. A lot of little just... Now we must run back and forth between this place, and now canine's going to be evil for a while, and then <laughs> we need to can't. shove him in a hole. And then canine's going to... And gonna... then he's not going to be evil anymore, because when he can't... I missed something. <laughs> that was one of the most disturbing moments for me. For some reason, I saw canine almost melting, and then there was a canine in a hole later, but that made him not evil, so... What happened was, I think you missed the detail here. Yeah. Canine was ordered by the shadow to go and like approach the doctor no i had that part and i thought the the scenes of like him confronting the doctor were actually kind of appropriately creepy because we're so used to canine being the helpful canine companion etc etc that when he's now not being you know like yes master i mean as much problematic as we've always found that Mm -hmm. but when suddenly he's now calling the doctor doctor Mm -hmm. 
and, it, and somebody else mastered. Somebody else mastered. No, like that's creepy. That's fair enough. But like, so what happens is the doctor gets one over on K nine and forces him down the shaft. K nine falls over, and then K nine makes uh, Drax pull the little thing off of his chin. That's what happened. I know, but still, there was lots of like shoving K nine through holes and. <laughs> I anyway. There's a there was a certain point where I was just like, I missed something, and we're spending a little bit too much time on it. Canon also spends like a minute of this story speaking in modem speak to another computer, so you know there is. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, like decades before, modem noises would have been like, you know, audible to the to the general public. Although I guess the 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 technical team at Doctor Who would have would have had some concept of of what modem sounded like, but yeah, I don't know. There's I think the silly elements I actually am okay with in this episode because the silly om- moments are the ones that are kind of better done. Yeah, I mean, it, which is... is kind of a weird thing to say. The more serious moments in this episode, it's not even that they're bad or the story, it's not even that they're badly done. It's just that they are not all tied together in a way that makes sense enough so that when you're trying to focus on the serious stuff, it just kind of... Um, I, I just ended up being a little confused a lot of the time, which isn't my favorite watching process. I kind of like to be able to tell what's going on and not just be like, oh, well, Romana looks like she's wearing a really cute dress, this one. I like that. No, are those pants? No, those are boots. That's crazy. She looks good in this episode. Yeah, she always does. So yeah, let's let's talk about that. I mean, um, Romana won. Mary Tam leaves after this story, and like the Graham Williams thought he could convince her to come back, and that's why she didn't get a proper writing out scene. Oh, okay, it it really is. I just because I found her so charming and so interesting and clever, and you kept waiting for her to get more to do, knowing that she's not going to be back after that is disappointing so i think like part of the reason that i didn't really care for this story is just because of my own knowledge of what's gonna happen next right so mary tam actually the rumor was for a long time that she got that she got fired the reality was she decided not to come back for two reasons one is that she figured she'd done as much she could with the character which based on kind of the scripting that she was given uh is probably true and uh, B, she got pregnant during the during the break and oh. decided not to come back. So, um, well, she had a family. That's nice. Uh, she never appears again. She said she would have uh, been happy to come back and film a going away scene at the beginning of the next story, but they didn't ask her back, so she didn't. So that's congratulations. You've seen the end of Mary Tam and Doctor Who. That's so disappointing. And again, I mean, it's disappointing in a way that the whole opportunity to talk about Time Lord culture in general is just missed. Yeah. And yeah, there's this whole dynamic between her and the Doctor that I know now is just, it's never going to be resolved. Right. I mean, you're going to get Romana too, and we're going to get to see quite a bit of Romana too. And I get that, but you know, a regeneration is a regeneration. I don't care which which Time Lord it is. So there, a lot of that difference is going to be based on Romana 2's personality, which, I don't know, maybe I'll like her. I'm not saying that I won't. I am saying that Lala Ward looks like 12. Well, like she, she looks she really young. She has a young very here. young face, and she is a very tiny woman. But that that's just really an aside. I have no problem with that. She seems like... Uh, from the few moments Astra got to be Astra, she seems like she's a really good actress and can command your attention. But I will also say that this episode is when I'm really starting to notice how much Tom Baker has aged. And so therefore how much this doctor has kind of aged. And that's not just his grumpiness. It's also kind of, it's his demeanor. You know, the way he looks at people in the world around them. It changes over the course of the show. So I'm interested to see how that kind of slightly wizened Tom Baker is going to play off of the very young looking and very invigorating Romana 2. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, it's also 
obviously, I mean, spoiler alert, Tom Baker and Lila Ward eventually got married for like a year. Mm-hmm. And um, they also hated each other during many of their scenes that they were shooting together. Um, there are scenes in the TARDIS where they're together and they're sharing a scene together and they don't look at each other because they can't stand to look at each other. Like, that's how hard the relationship gets at certain points. But yeah, Tom Baker sticks around for two more years. We talked a lot about uh, Tom Baker mm-hmm. uh, earlier on in the Key to Time season mm-hmm. about the relationship between Tom Baker and Romana. Um, I'm wondering how you feel about Tom Baker in these kind of later episodes about the relationship or just about it gets the more, fourth doctor. Yeah, I think the L- fourth less doctor. Tom Baker, but the fourth doctor. The fourth doctor seems to just more and more not be in the big story in some ways. He, it's kind of like he shows up, he hears, he hears the point of the episode and then he's just kind of in it and like kind of, you know, makes things happen in his wake. I think at this point he was barely even reading the scripts. But yeah, he seems very disconnected from anybody, really, except for Canine, which is really weird. For, like, (laughs) for him to seem disconnected from anyone human, but for him to, like, he really just seems to jazzed every time he gets to use that dog whistle, and every time he gets to flick one of the little antenna ears, um, and he's like, Canine, go do this. But in his interactions with others... Well, the others, robot dog can't talk back to him, so... Right, no, exactly. And, but in his interactions with others, you can see more and more... Again, the fourth Doctor seems to be withdrawing to some degree. Yeah. Um, and whether or not that is entirely because of the actor's personal life, or if that is partially because of the writing, it's a little hard to tell for me. Sure. I mean, I'm just trying to get you to just look at the fourth Doctor and the way he's characterized... Well, and Whether I think performance yeah. writing is. What do you think of the fourth doctor at this point? I mean, he's kind of. I, I think that's what I'm saying is he's kind of lost a lot of his characteristics for me. He's kind of gotten a little. It's a, it's amazing watching like Robot or mm-hmm. the Ark in Space right next to this. Yeah, his personality just isn't showing as well, much. Anymore. Remember how dynamic he was in mm-hmm. those early days, even in the Repos operation, where I mean, mm-hmm. he just he feels really invigorated. He feels like he's having a good time. I mean, here he feels like, I mean, the fourth doctor feels like he's just high energy. He's just, and not in a manic way, just in a, like, he's really involved. I mean, slightly manic way, but I, I definitely feel, and maybe this is something about the whole of this story. The Armageddon factor. Yeah, the whole of the Armageddon factor is that it seems like it's trying really hard to be extra serious. Yeah. And I think the fourth Doctor portrays extra serious as quiet and calm and still, but you don't feel the same energy as when he's bouncy. There are moments of bouncy and super active and all these ideas coming out at once, but much more he feels kind of... He ends up being a lone wolf a lot of the time. He keeps getting uh, separated from other people. He is continually put on his own behind the scenes i don't know if it's just how they chose to wrote it if they just anyways you know what i mean (laughs) i'm leaving that shit in (laughs) (laughs) i'm caffeine crashing um if that's just how they decided to write it or if that is specifically something about the actor or something they're trying to do with the character. I don't know. But more and more, the Doctor feels like he's isolating himself. (laughs) Sure. And the companion gets to go around and try and engage the world that they're trying to help. Mm -hmm. And he shows up in the nick of time to say, ah, but I know this one thing that all of you don't. You know, I will say, um, in particular... I mean, just kind of piggybacking off on that. Increasingly, they give the kind of exposition, the like, uh, you know, the stuff to do to the companion. So, mm-hmm. especially in the early days of the Key to Time season, Romana really is kind of explaining the plot to people a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, increasingly, she's kind of left high and dry. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, I don't know. I don't know, you know, what that speaks to, unless it's just kind of. Well, it's weird because up until now, they don't really address it. Um, or it seems like the doctor doesn't really care for her much. But then at one point in this episode, or in the story, I think he does say, well, she's fine. She's a time lord, too. She can take care of herself. But at the same time, I don't know necessarily know that I think he believes that. 
I think the reason I kind of keep backpedaling and cycling around is because there's a lot going on in this episode, but there's nothing really going on in this episode. It, it's a lot of, I mean, it is like a lot of just kind of mainline, pretty standard Doctor Who in that it's a lot of running through corridors, a lot of kind of running in place, mm -hmm. and some really interesting ideas that are sometimes more effectively used than others. You know, I think that there is some kind of cool, I mean, fiddling with the key to time and like this, this access to godlike power and the way that you know, people are going to be corrected by that. Again, big idea, we don't really spend a lot of time with it. You know, the the idea of this computer that is going to, you know, set off this chain reaction. I mean, Doctor Strange Love had done it almost 20 years earlier right. at this point. Um, and Doctor Who had even done it <laughs> several times, had these kind of big computers that were doing these these awful things or whatever. But I kind of, I, I look at this one, I, I watched it, I enjoyed it, I think of it fondly, but I don't know that I care that much about it i kind of feel similarly about this one as uh maybe the androids of terra where it's 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 fun i like it i think i like it less now that we're talking about it it's kind of interesting that, well you know, i i kind of feel the same way honestly i kind of love these cold war allegories so i'm almost like predisposed to like this one um it's just kind of one of those things that i just it like wasn't it bad to watch it was somewhat entertaining it had it just felt again Part of what you're saying of watching back through a whole season of this time period is I am seeing just how much of this era really was kind of fluffy. Yep. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of substance to it. People were still watching the show just because it was Doctor Who. And um, there are great, there's great stuff here and mm -hmm. there. I think every single story in the Key to Time season has some really interesting idea oh, buried yeah. in it. Um, sometimes more effectively utilized than others. I think the show still can do great things. But the Armageddon Factor feels like a little bit of a misfire. At least it does not live up to what it wanted to. Sure. And you can tell that it had... Well, and this is Bob hopes. Baker and Dave Martin who are just... They're workman-like writers. They're not doing... They're, they're not the ones you give your like kind of brilliant script to. They're the ones mm -hmm. to say... Yeah, it, it is kind of amazing that they got the big six-part epic at the end. But they've been around since the early 70s, so, yeah. you know. All of this talk you're doing about the writers, I don't, you know, I don't really follow that as closely, but right. I believe you. Final thoughts on the Armageddon Factor or the Key to Time or Romana 1? No, I kind of feel like I said everything I wanted to. All right, next week we're going to talk about City of Death. Uh, this is a Romana 2 story. It's got, uh, it takes place in Paris. It's uh, considered to be one of the finest episodes of Doctor Who ever, actually. And I don't mind telling you that before we watch it. And we're going to have a special guest on this episode. Is it so going to live up to it? I, you're going to find out. Do we get to see a lot of Paris? We do, actually, quite a bit. Yeah, so we're going to see the city. We're going to see not the city of death. It's city of death. I actually find it hugely entertaining. So we're going to uh, cool. enjoy that. And uh, after that, we're creeping up on Series 9 premiere um, again. Oh, just to remind people, we're going to be watching those. Um, we're going to be reviewing those two at a time after the second one airs. So the first week after one of these airs, we're not going to actually put an episode up about that until the week after. So just letting everybody know at the end of all these episodes, don't expect a discussion of the first episode until after episode two airs. And spoilers! Have you heard who's coming for the series? For the Christmas special? Mm-hmm. You want to talk about River Song for a minute, or should we just save that for... That's it. Uh, That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> Maybe it'll be brilliantly written, and we'll have, like, a real uh, connection between uh, Capaldi and uh, Alex Kingston. Who are you, and what have you done with my husband? This optimist <laughs> I see before me. It's possible. It's possible. <laughs> all right. Next week, City of Death. Look it's forward awesome. to that. We're going to have a special guest. And other than that, the TARDIS is closed. That was my TARDIS going on. Our theme song is Doctor Who Theme on Minimoog by James Bragg. His YouTube channel can be found at youtube.com slash hypedust7, all one word. The website for his band can be found at www.phoenix-flare.com. We thank him for the use of his work. Looking for more? Oi Spaceman can also be found at oispaceman.lipson.com, all one word, and we're also on iTunes and Facebook. Daniel is also a regular on the They Must Be Destroyed on Site movie podcast hosted by Lee Russell, which you can find at tmbdos.podbean.com. 
Daniel's individual Twitter and Tumblr can be found at Daniel E. Harper, all one word, and Shana's can be found at Inkyosa, that's I-N-K-Y-O-S-A. You can also email us at oyspacemanpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com.